welcome to Old Testament in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're back for our second part of Genesis 3, looking at the consequences of that first sin and temptation, but also the consequences of our own sins today. Hopefully you're enjoying the ride so far, so let's get to our next stop along the way. Been another pretty eventful week this week on my website, danieldidek.com. If you haven't been there again yet, go ahead and check it out. You can find the podcast episodes on there as well as wherever you're listening to them and a whole lot of other stuff. Information about my fantasy series, The Triumvirs, is all up there on their own page. There's a new blog now going on. If you haven't checked that out yet, you could do that. The main point of the blog is... I guess there's kind of two objectives of the blog. The first is to have a little bit more content as far as uh, scripture devotions. So what I do with that is I take an excerpt, one or two or three lines from By Ways Unseen, book one of the series, an excerpt from one chapter, and then usually so far it's ended up being two Bible verses that kind of tie into what's happening in the book at that point. And then I end up writing a devotion. So it brings in a lot of what's happening in the book, some things about the main character, Hadron, that um, you'd be learning as you read through the book, and then tying that into the scripture devotion and something for us in our Christian walk to be paying attention to and to be working toward and things like that. So that's the blog. Um, That's been up now our second week this past week. And also brand new for this week, if you haven't been there yet since Wednesday, audio chapters for By Ways Unseen are starting to go up already. Two chapters are available now. To get access to them, the page itself where you can listen to those those chapters is password protected. So you will need to sign up for my newsletter in order to get that. It'll come automatically as soon as you sign up for it. And I don't inundate people with newsletters. Mine come out once a month or so. You're not signing up for a whole bunch of junk in your email again. Uh, Like I said, what you will get is a free short story. And then now you'll also get the password to start listening to the audio versions of By Ways Unseen, read by me. I decided to do it myself rather than hire a professional book reader. That may happen somewhere down the line. But for now, you just listen to my voice reading you my own book. So you'll find out how everything is pronounced, at least the way I pronounce it. So that's all there. You can go ahead and check out the blog, check out the books if you want to. Beyond that, work is still progressing on book four, one and a half weeks in, and I'm already, I'm still sticking to my word count gold. So that's been a lot of fun writing it. It's been good that I've, I really enjoy and I'm excited by the fact that I could kind of set it aside for six months while other things kind of took up my focus. But then, you know, I was able to jump right back in, keep meeting my word count goals, and I'm still so far pretty happy with what I've been writing. So that's what's going on. I don't know if next week as many things are going to be happening, (laughs) moving on the website as it is now, but hey, as long as it happens, progress is being made. It's all good. So with that, we're going to move into the actual episode, Genesis chapter three. Quick recap of last week. Remember, we looked through the first six verses of chapter three. We find that Satan's primary goal in every temptation is to get us to set ourselves up as God instead of letting God be our God. We mentioned, too, about the idea of the physical veil of the temple of the Old Testament, that any time we set something else up between us and Christ, we are essentially reconstructing what he tore down with his death on the cross and resurrection three days later. That what Jesus wants most desperately is a close and personal relationship with each of us. But when we choose the garbage of this world over the true beauty and wonder of God's kingdom, even in the slightest way, 
it becomes for us a veil that still hides our view and relationship from what it could be. We're going to be building off that image, particularly today, as we return to Genesis 3. So, Satan has arrived, tempted Eve, she's succumbed, as has Adam, and they've both eaten the fruit they were told by God not to eat. Now, the world comes crashing down, almost quite literally. In verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. One of the first outcomes of sin is Satan's continued exertion over our minds. Once you've crossed the line, taken the thing you shouldn't have taken or done the thing you shouldn't have done, Satan loves to make you feel guilty. He'll tell you what a despicable person you are, worthless, unlovable. Now for sure God is done with you and doesn't want to see you. I know it's easy to find more impish representations of Satan out there in the world. He's just a bit of a scamp if he's acknowledged at all. Many people, including Christians, it turns out, don't even believe Satan exists. They tie, perhaps a little too tightly, to the fallen nature of man and believe we get ourselves into enough trouble without any outside interference needed. I know I myself sometimes fall into this trap occasionally, but Peter is very clear about this in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 8, cautioning us, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He's looking for someone, anyone, and he prowls, so he can be subtle, you might not see him coming, but he's also like a roaring lion, one you can hear from five miles away, so we shouldn't be surprised when he shows up. But most important for us, he exists, and he isn't impish or scampish. His goal is to devour you. He will do everything he can to lure you into sin, and then continue to do everything he can to keep you there and keep you away from God. And just as important, he has been defeated. He only has the power over you that you allow him. He cannot actually keep us from God, and if Christ is in us, he cannot truly devour us, and he cannot keep us in sin. The second folly, after believing he doesn't exist, is to believe he does, and that we are powerless against him. We aren't. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you, Paul says in Romans 8 verse 11. Satan loves to make us think God stops loving us as soon as we sin. But here in Genesis, we see this lie revealed too. Picking back up in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Can I suggest to you that God has not stopped sending that call to mankind since Genesis chapter 3, verse 9? All his covenants, sending his son into the world to die for our sins, is a repeated, earnest, loving call of, Where are you? Why are you hiding? I'm looking for you. Come to me because I love you. But what is man's response? Verse 10. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, I want us, for the rest of these several verses, to hear them from a loving, kind, patient, and merciful God, not one who is furious with his creation. So don't hear these next words as if coming from a thunderbolt, but from one who knew what he had made and whose heart was broken because they rejected him, even though he had given them everything they needed. I know a lot of my anger is the result of being surprised by something, right? A lot of unrighteous anger, we might say. My two-year-old does something, and it's not that the something is really so heinous or wicked, it's that I'm surprised by it. He's sitting nice and peacefully in the bathtub and then suddenly splashes 15 gallons of water all over me in the floor. It's water, though. It's not evil, but it surprises me and my voice rises. But we know God is not surprised, right? 
So his voice in these next several verses are coming from one who knew what would happen before he created them, knew what he was getting into, and did it anyway. Verse 11, And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Second thing, no one has to tell me when I'm naked. A professor once suggested to me that the original sin was self-awareness, from which came selfishness. And Jesus, when he finally comes to earth, spends a lot of time reminding us to stop thinking about ourselves all the time. Do not worry about what you will eat or what you will wear. Very personal concerns, those. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. When faced with a command of God, whether through scripture or personally in our lives what he wants us to do for his kingdom, the last thing he wants us to think about is ourselves. But God, if I do that, how will I eat? What will I wear? What will people think of me? What if they tried to kill me? We probably don't have time to get into this today, and there will be ample opportunity as we go on. For now, let's say for safety's sake that this is not a call to be irresponsible. We must first be sure it is God who calls us, not our own desires. We make the plans, God directs or establishes the steps, it says in Proverbs 16, verse 9. But once he has directed that step, it is for us to take it in confidence and faith. We can't do that if we're caught up in ourselves only, if we only worry about how naked we are. Verse 12, the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. You've probably heard it if you've been a Christian for a length of time. The next thing we do is fall to blaming. And it's true sometimes. Some people have no problem accepting all the blame and responsibility for something, accepting more than their fair share even, and feeling responsible for things over which they have zero control. But notice too that they both still admit, and I ate. What do our children do sometimes when we ask them, did you do this? They say, no. If nothing else, it is good that Adam and Eve both admit they did eat, even if they blamed someone else for why. But notice, too, the blame goes downward. Adam blamed Eve, who did not blame Adam for being a bad partner or not stopping her. She laid the blame on the serpent. Now, God has specific places to spend his anger, which we need to be able to admit to ourselves he has a right and a need to spend. God cannot be God if he simply lets sin go. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Pause here to appreciate that God addressed the serpent, Satan, first. Whatever anger God had, he directed at the enemy first. And he did it, too, by promising Jesus would come for him later. In his pride, Satan probably didn't recognize the threat. But what we see here so early in the Bible is that God already planned on sending Jesus. So again, let's remember that nothing surprises God. As we continue through the Old Testament, we must always remember that Jesus is already promised to come, even with everything else going on. That will, or should, change our perspective on a lot of what's to come. But we'll refer back to that a lot. Verse 16, To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is kind of an interesting verse to read in parallel translations. 
A lot of them are translated this way, with only minor modifications that don't seem to change or even color the meaning, but there are some exceptions. Some of the more modern translations that try to cast it in an easy-to-understand language specify that Eve's desire would be to control her husband, which seems to make sense given the qualification that he will rule over her. But in the literal standard version, it says this, and I'm going to cut out some of their parenthetical insertions. Multiplying, I multiply your sorrow and your conception. You will bear children in sorrow and your desire toward your man, and he will rule over you. This is interesting to me because this almost makes it sound more like her desire toward her man will be equally fraught with sorrow. And when I looked it up in one of my favorite resources, blueletterbible.org, in the King James Version it says, And thy desire shall be to thy husband. But when we use the tools to look at the Hebrew, we see that the words shall be are not in the original Hebrew. Now, again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. There may be things in inflection and sentence structure that make the shall be implied, even though the word itself is not there. Alternatively, this is scholars' attempt to recognize the reality that people desire power and quarrel with each other to get it. But, because for much of human history, power rests with the physically strong, men have long dominated their wives. In the end, I'm not sure it matters if we read it the literal way or with the insertion of shall be, because regardless, the relationship between man and woman is, indeed, filled with sorrow and struggles for power. Only under true reconciliation of Christ, and in submission to him as the authority on our relationships, can we even approach something like the unity implied by the two becoming one flesh. Verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife, and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Herein lies the start of what Paul draws attention to in Romans chapter 8, verses 19-23. through 23. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Remember, I said last time that our flesh will not be made perfect, ever. Let me clarify that we will receive new, glorified bodies, truly and completely free from sin, in God's eternal kingdom. What I had meant by that is that our current bodies will be destroyed, so the flesh you and I walk around in day to day will not be with us in heaven. That is why we too groan inwardly, hating the sins we commit, at least we should, waiting for our new, sinless bodies. For the sake of time, I won't read all of it, but check out 1 Corinthians 15 for more about this. For now, particularly verses 50 through 52. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, that is, we will not all die, but we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, that is, those who are still alive, will be changed. Important in this set of verses, then, I think, is this. And I've said it in an earlier episode, but I'll repeat it here. We should not be surprised at two things. First, that what feels natural, good, and normal to us, 
God calls a sin somewhere in Scripture. The idea of following your heart is nowhere in Scripture, at least not without the understanding first that your heart must be changed by God before you can possibly think of following it. For newer Christians, this means reading your Bible over and over and over and meeting with godly men and women and practicing prayer and testing every thought and desire with full submission to God's will. While I say newer Christians, I don't mean we should ever stop this practice. Simply that, as we mature in our faith and knowledge of God, the easier and faster we will discern whether a desire is biblically sound or not. The second thing we should not be surprised at is that things that occur in nature are similarly sometimes called sin in the Bible. It is not just humans who are cursed because of our sin. As Genesis says, and Romans reiterates, all creation was cursed and is not now functioning the way it is supposed to. This is why science is not a study of morality and should not contribute to our morality in the slightest. Nothing we believe, say, or do should be checked against scientific study alone for verification. Now, science is the study of what God has made, and his fingerprints are all over it. So there are many examples of how to live holy lives that can be derived from nature. The New Testament calls these examples parables, and episode 2 of Writing in Faith talks about this a lot. But if the only verification we can find is scientific, it's probably not how Christians are supposed to live. I might make so bold as to say definitely not, but if the only example you can find is derived from science, it may just be that you haven't found it in scripture yet. I encourage you not to settle on a belief, though, until you find it there. At the same time, I find it silly how many times I see people dismiss science as a complete study just because people try to use the theory of evolution as a reason not to believe in God. People have found multitude reasons not to believe in God long before Darwin came along, and there are plenty of things science has taught us that we have no problem accepting so long as it already fits in whatever mold we have made for it. As with almost everything else, the problem with science only comes when people put faith in it to save. We can utilize it, certainly. I trust in the science behind airbags to keep me safe in my car in the event of a crash. My life is ultimately in God's hands, so if the days he has written for me are done, no amount of airbags will keep me from entering his kingdom. But if my days are not done, God can work just as miraculously through airbags as he can a supernatural guardian. I'm digressing way out there, so let's get back to the text. Verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. What I find interesting here is that originally they were allowed to eat from the tree of life. At least the only tree they were commanded not to eat from was of the knowledge of good and evil. So when God says, take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, my assumption would be it would not be a one-time thing. If we take what we said earlier about our mortal flesh needing to be clothed in immortality and work it in, I would paint this picture. Adam and Eve were of the same flesh we are. They were not immortal beings in the same sense that we will be in God's eternal kingdom. The only reason they would have lived forever had they not taken from the other tree would have been because they ate somewhat regularly from the tree of life, which renewed them any time they ate. I'll also take a quick minute here to say that it's very likely that Adam and Eve were not precisely the same as you and I were, as if there was some way for us to go back to the beginning of time, to the Garden of Eden, and met Adam and Eve, that they would be 100% the same as we are. There's a couple things in the text that support this. For one thing, the idea of Adam naming everything that received its name suggests a level of mental ability that probably not many of us can quite imagine. Even I, as a fantasy writer who comes up with a lot of different names, still rely largely on existing names 
after which I sort of pattern the things that I name in my books. There's also the fact that after they left the garden, people still lived an abnormally long time, even without access to the Tree of Life. Which, I know, to all of you sciencey people, sounds mystical and magical. For Christians, this should sound somewhat familiar, though. Unless we take and eat regularly of the body of Christ, we, too, die under the oppressive weight of the knowledge of good and evil. But at least here in Genesis, we haven't gotten to that yet. Verse 23. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Go with me really quick back to the beginning of all of this. Chapter 2, verse 17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was all God commanded them. I think oftentimes we fall into this trap as well, Christians as well as non-Christians. We think, I only did this. That's not that bad. I'm not hurting anyone. We love to classify sins on a scale. You can do this thing over and over again and still be a good person. But if you do that thing even one time, you are despicable. I don't think God sees it necessarily that way. Sin can have varying external consequences. It can impact people around you to more or less degree. And sins can be indicators of better or worse heart conditions. Someone who says they took the garbage out when they didn't, actually, doesn't have the same issues as a serial killer. And it will be far easier for them to turn from that sin than the other. But there is a very grave danger here in dabbling with the idea that some sins are worse than others, and it is one I find myself smack in the middle of in two areas. If a particular sin is not that bad, then committing it is not that bad, and the more you commit it, the deeper it grows its roots. Then one day you suddenly realize how terrible a particular sin is, and you decide to go about tearing it out, and it doesn't come. Why do you think God cursed the ground, filling it with briars, and making us get our food only by the sweat of our brow? Because cultivating our own lives, digging sin's roots out, is not easy, especially as we let it continue to grow. This may be my immaturity still as a believer, and I understand that without Christ I can do nothing, and only Christ in me gives me any hope of victory over sin. But what has not yet worked for me is a notion of removing sin and fighting temptation by doing nothing. Not nothing, but supposedly just letting Jesus work in me and exerting no effort on my part. Like I said, maybe I'm just doing it wrong, or maybe I'm understanding the principle wrong. And no, I'm not fighting for my salvation. I get that part. But the pursuit of holiness, for me anyway, is not something that happens just by sitting back. When Paul talks about training like an athlete in 1 Corinthians 9, or striking a blow to his body, or talks about putting on the armor of God in order to fight in Ephesians, or crucifying our flesh in Galatians 2 and 5. Each of those call to mind a fight, a struggle, committing to press forward into something that will not be easy, that will see days of great focus and victory, as well as days or moments of great distraction and failure. What we mustn't do in those moments of failure is try to calm our grief by convincing ourselves the sin isn't that bad. Maybe we don't actually need to resist that temptation. God will forgive us anyway, I pray daily that God will make my pursuit of holiness easier, whether through supernatural power or by some piece of wisdom I do not yet possess. And if he gives me that, trust me, I'll do a full podcast episode on it. But let's make no mistake. God told Adam and Eve not to eat something. Have you ever told yourself not to eat something and then you did anyway? I guarantee you didn't feel like a despicable human being worthy of the fires of hell when you did. And yet that's what happened. Sin, any sin, is serious. James chapter 2 verse 10 for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And to continue doing it allows its roots to grow so deep that perhaps one day we will be unable to remove it. 
Hebrews 12, verse 17, speaking of Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. For you know that even afterward, wishing to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, although having earnestly sought it with tears. I used the Berean literal Bible for that one because the NIV has changed the meaning from what the Greek says. The NIV says he could not change what he had done, but the Greek says he found no place of repentance. To repent means to turn away from a thought or way of acting. So a place of repentance indicates that though he wanted the blessing, he was not sorry for what he had done. Some translations draw out literally that he sought the blessing with tears, not the repentance. He was sorry to lose a blessing, and how many of us are like that? We regret having to experience the consequences of sin, but we are not sorry for the sin itself. Or, put another way, we're only sorry we got caught. We'll get to the story of Esau in a while, and develop this more probably then. For now, let's encourage one another and commit to not letting a sin grow root. It will serve us best in the future. That's all for this week. Continuing straight on to Genesis 4 next week as mankind begins to offer sacrifices to atone for sin and even screws that up. What a wonderful lot we are. Thank God, seriously, for a Savior. Join me next Saturday, and until then, keep the faith and keep it old school.